Hey, let me encourage you to go ahead and grab a Bible. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 24 with me. 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, which is great to do, just um, you'll find this text today on page 427. No, 247. There we go, 247. You know, while you're getting set up in 1 Samuel 24, let me just say a word. I mean, sometimes I get asked the question, well, why do we spend such a large percentage of our services focused on preaching? It's not because I get paid by the word. Actually, shorter sermons would probably be harder to prepare, actually. But anyways, you know. And, but you go to some other uh, different traditions, and they spend a lot less time proclaiming the word than we do. And I want to just remind you this morning that our conviction is really in many ways just flows straight out of the Scriptures. You know, the Scripture says that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching and correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped, you know, ready for every good work. And, and, and we teach the Word of God because we are convinced that in the pages of God's inspired Word, there's life. And the way that you experience that life is to understand it. So part of my goal every week as I preach is that when you walk out the door, you understand the Scripture better than when you walked in. And from there, you have the resources in your hands to be able to experience life as God intends to give it to you. Now, there are other traditions who approach things differently. There are those who, who really, we, we, there are other traditions who, who really see that the, the Eucharist is the place where you get life, right? And, and, and so their services are built around the fact that it is the, in the partaking of the Eucharist that we really experience the grace of the life of God. And, and, there, there's certainly ways in which we honor what God has done for us through that, but, but our conviction is that real life is found in the truth. And that's what we try to present to you. Now, we have a lot to cover this morning in our passages. I'm, trying to, I'm actually trying to finish the book of 1 Samuel next week. Um, uh, and so we have seven chapters to cover in two weeks. So today we're going to do four, all right? I'm going to walk you through each of the events in these four chapters in just a minute. But I want to give us an angle to look at the Word of God today. Again, we've been, we've been working through 1 Samuel with this perspective. What did they go through that we can learn about our own journey of walking with God? I mean, they lived thousands of years ago. Life's a lot different from them and that kind of stuff. But in their journey, as the nation moves from being under judgeship to under kingship, and we look at the lives of Samuel and Saul and David, as we look at their journey, what can we learn from them for our journey? And today I think we're going to see an experience that I think a lot of us have. David, on several different occasions, is going to be standing in a moment, and it's going to be hard to figure out what God's will is. You could look at the evidence and say this is true, or you could look at the evidence and say that is true. This got asked kind of my life group on Wednesday night. We're working through the book of Genesis. We finally got to the place where Isaac is born. And then the very next chapter, God instructs him to go and offer up Isaac as a sacrifice on the top of Mount Moriah. You know, and, and then right in the middle of it, literally when, when, when Abraham's ready to plunge the knife, God stops him. And the question is asked, well, you know, obviously it was a very difficult thing. How, how do we know? I mean, we don't, we don't necessarily hear from God with an audible voice like Abraham, right? Who shows up and has dinner with us like it happens in a couple of... We don't, we don't seem to have those. How do, you, how do we really know? And so many of us get into those moments where we're not exactly sure what is God's will. Should I take this job or that job? 
Should we buy this house or that house? Should, should, you know, should we have one more kid or is, should we have any kids at all? And, you know, should I marry this person? Should I date this person? The list just goes on and on. Should I buy this car, that car, whatever? How much debt is okay for us? You know, we have all kinds of questions that we struggle with. How is it in the world that we really understand what God's will is in a place where it may be just not all that black and white to us? And I think as we look at David's experience, In these four chapters, we can learn some truths that are really powerful for us. Now, these are about how God is moving him to the kingship. That's clear and evident. But we can draw some things from it for ourselves. So let me just tell you what happens in these four chapters. And then we'll go back and look at pieces of it to kind of bring out our point. As we start chapter 24, David is still on the run from King Saul. Samuel, who was the last judge, the prophet, the spiritual and political leader of the nation from God's instruction has anointed Saul to be the first king. When Saul fails to live up to the full standard of what that means before God, Samuel is led by God to anoint David as the next king. The only problem is that David is not Samuel, is not Saul's son, and Saul really wants his monarchy, his dynasty to continue, so he's chasing David, trying to kill him so that his own family can continue on the throne. When we last left him, David again is fleeing again. We find him in, in an area of the country. I want to show you a couple of pictures here. These are ones that I took when I was in Israel a couple of years ago. This is the area down by the, the Dead Sea where David is. Some of the area is actually a lot more harsh than that. The photo looked a whole lot better on my, my computer than it does on that big screen. But you, you can see it's, it, it's actually so hot that it's hazy. And it's literally just in the air, right? You know, and it's just kind of scrub brush. Some places, just it's literally just like hardened clay. Now, the area we think this took place, this story in chapter 24, is actually is in the next photo. We actually think that in this, in this canyon, where there's a little bit of a trickle of water, that's why you have the greenery that's in there, there were a series of caves. And David and his men are running from Saul as he comes down with the... Um, with his, his 3,000 men, he's chasing David. And David and some of his men had holed up in, this, in, in a cave in this valley. Saul's coming along, and he's got his 3,000 men. He's looking for David. They see the sheep pens, and they say, ha-ha, we're hot in the trail. But Saul, he needs a potty break. He needs to go to the bathroom, all right? And, and it's just, you know, he, he doesn't want to just do it out in the wide open, right? He, want, he wants some privacy. So he probably leaves his men down in the area and he wanders back up in and he steps into a cave so that he can kind of get undressed and go to the bathroom in private, right? How many of you like to have a little... Anyways, well, I want to ask that question. So the only problem is that David and his men are hiding in the back of this cave. So in comes Saul. I don't want to be too graphic, whatever. And, And David's men in the back are saying, this is your day. God has brought your enemy to you. He's totally vulnerable, right? I mean, he's thinking about other things. You know, he's reading the newspaper, doing whatever, you know. And this is your moment God has given him into your hand. And David sneaks up, and he cuts off the edge of Saul's robe. Now, we said, well, how could he do that? He probably wasn't wearing it. He probably took it off, set it aside, okay? And, and he cuts off an edge of it, and then he withdraws, and his men are like, all right, all right, all right. You know, and, and they don't tell us exactly what they said, but they're saying, hey, 
you can't do it, we'll do it. Maybe saying, you know, we know you're his son-in-law and that kind of stuff. Just let us do this for you. Let this be our gift. God's given him. Don't miss this opportunity. And David says, no, 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 no. We're not going to touch him. Saul redresses, if you will, makes his way back down. As he's getting to the bottom of the canyon, David yells out from the mouth of the cave and starts talking to Saul. He says, why are you chasing me? If I was your enemy, wouldn't I have just killed you? But I, I had the opportunity. Here's the proof. I've got your robe, part of your robe in my hand. Now, there's a lot of symbolism in that. You know, and I think it's intended symbolism. Part of that is the fact that, that it's like David is taking the throne, if you will, the royalty from, from Saul. But it's also the fact that by cutting the robe, the robe was no longer fit to be worn in worship before God. And so Saul is no longer able to wear his royal garments, if you will, when he goes into worship. It's a, it's a sign of his isolation from God. So there's a little back and forth there between David and Saul, and Saul re- repents of pursuing David. David doesn't really believe him much, so he keeps his men in the very southern territory of Judah. He's right on the fringes of the nation, outside of the grasp of Saul. And, he, and while they're wandering around in the wilderness, this leads us into chapter 25, Saul and his men become guardians, if you will, protectors of the herds and the shepherds of, the, of probably the wealthiest man from the tribe of Caleb. If you remember the story, Caleb was, along with Joshua, was one of the, the only two spies who brought back a favorable report from the promised land when they were exiting um, Egypt under Moses. And they had settled in the southern portion of the nation, and the most, the most wealthy of those at this point, this Calebite, was a guy by the name of Nabal. Now, his name means fool. Can you imagine him being in the hospital? And the nurse comes in and says, well, what name do you want us to put on the birth certificate? Um, stupid idiot. You know, just put stupid idiot down. You know, I mean, I, mean it's par- you know, I don't know if this was his real name or not, but everybody calls him Nabal, right? Fool. What, what a name, right? You know? <laughs> so this guy, the time comes to the shearing, and there's... And so David says, you know what, this, this is our moment. So he sends 10 of his guys, and with a great deal of humility and submission and et cetera, he says, hey, listen, when, when, when your 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats were out roaming around the plain, in various areas trying to find pasture to eat, your, your shepherds and your herds were vulnerable, and my men protected them from the marauders. No Philistines, no Gerasites, none of the Malachites. Nobody came and took anything of yours. Neither did any of my men. So I've done you a service. So now that you're at this time of shearing when there's an abundance and you're going to have just, just send me what's, what, what you think is right. Nabal, he looks at these guys and says, you, know, you guys are just riffraff. You guys are nothing but runaway slaves. Why would I give you a dime? Get out of my sight. The word gets back to David. And David is, and I like to use a different word, but my wife told me not to in this service. Like it is. He, he's ticked. I mean, his blood is boiling. And he says, guys, lock and load. Put on your swords. We're going after this guy. He leaves 200 guys to protect the families, and off he goes. In the meantime, Nabal's wife, Abigail, is informed about what's going on. She, she, the Scripture tells us that she's beautiful and intelligent. 
I mean, why do the stupid guys get the... Uh, anyways, you know, but she's beautiful and intelligent, and the servants come, and they said, listen, your, your husband's really made a big mistake, and David was great to us, whatever. We really should have given, you know, and now, man, we're all going to die. You know, and so Abigail gives immediate instructions. Load up this, load up that, whatever. To, some wine, some raisins, some dates, some bread, some, some animals that are already prepared, and ship them off to David, and I'll follow along. And she prepares herself, she rides out on a donkey, and as, and as David and his 400 men are coming down the hill, she's coming down the other side of the hill, and they meet in the ravine, and she, she literally just bows before him, and then she intercedes. It's really remarkable, because here she is a woman, for one thing. She's acting independent of her husband. That's a second thing in their culture. She's also speaking to the one who's been anointed to be the next king of Israel, and yet she steps into the gap and prevents David from taking blood, innocent blood, because he was intent to go in and he was going to kill Nabal and every male that was a part of his entourage. And she prevents him through her intercession. She, she recoils. David changes his mind. He departs. He takes the gifts that she has given. She goes back to her house, and, and when you get done cheering, it was just a huge feast, right? And the, and the scripture tells us it's, it's, a, it's a feast fit for a king. Right? And, I mean, because this guy is wealthy beyond, you know, think Warren Buffett kind of wealthy, right? I mean, just in those terms, he's just off the charts, right? You know, top 1%, top one-tenth of 1% kind of idea. He's having a huge party. He's too drunk to know what's going on. So the next morning after he slept it off, she comes in. She said, you know, we had a close call yesterday. David and the 400 of his men were headed into our camp. And if, and, and if, and if something hadn't happened, we hadn't interceded, all of the men would be dead today. And the scripture tells us that in that moment, Nabal had some kind of a, a physical, medical kind of situation that literally rendered him unconscious, and, and he died 10 days later. A lot of people speculate that he had a stroke, and he just lingered and eventually died. But immediately at that point, and then at that point, David gets not only, David not only gets vindicated, but he also gets the woman and all the stuff that goes with her. And he acts as the redeemer, and that's a whole different story as we go through because she didn't have any kids yet, and she lands up being the bearer of David's oldest son and all that kind of good stuff, and that, as the story goes on. But David's not done with Saul yet. This is chapter 26. So I know it's taking a long time, but we've got to get the foundation down before we can make our points. Saul, even though he had repented earlier when they were in, at En Gedi, He's back on the trail. He's ready to slaughter David again. So he hears through the Ziphites that David's hanging out in this area. He comes down. They set up camp at a place called Hakala. And, and, he's, and, he's, and, he, and, and at nighttime, David and his cousin, Abishai, slip down into the camp. Now, again, we, we kind of think, okay, you've got the tent in the middle. And all the These guys are probably just sleeping out on the ground. So the way this whole thing was that Saul's way at the very beginning, and then Abner, who's the captain of the guard, and the commander of the army, all these guys are right around him, and then there's just an ongoing ring of guys, 3,000 guys. And David and his cousin, they slip in in the middle of the night, and nobody sees them. And they get over the body of the king, you know? I mean, literally, the king's asleep on the ground, and, 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 and you know, Abishai says to David, says, God's given us into his hands. Look, look at it. This is your enemy. This is, this is the source of all your problems. And I can pin this guy to the ground, and I won't need to do it twice. Just give me the spear, and 
and we'll be done with this. And David doesn't let him. And he takes the king's spear, which was laying at his head, and he takes the water jug, symbols of his kingship and the source of life, and he takes those things with him, and when they get up on the mountain on the other side of the ravine, he yells out, and the first thing he does is he just rakes Abner over the coals. He says, what kind of a bodyguard are you, right? I mean, you ought to be shot for the way you've done your job. Except for they didn't have guns, so he says he should be executed, right? You know, and then from there he has an interaction with Saul again. Again, Saul repents of his pursuit of David, and actually the two of them never speak again. But David still doesn't trust Saul, so he withdraws again. This time he goes into the territory of his enemies, the Philistines, for a second time. This time he goes with his men. He convinces the Philistines that an enemy of their enemy has got to be their friend, and they allow him to live in a small little village called Ziklag. How would you like to be from Ziklag? Anyways, from, from Ziklag, you know, I guess it's no different, different than Pancake, Texas, right, to be Ziklag. Anyways, so, your pastor's kind of weird at times. Anyway, so, and, and David is conducting raids against the Amalekites, the, the Gershites, and some others, these enemies of Israel. But all the time, he's kind of being able to sell it off to the king of the, of the Philistine city of Gath that he's actually attacking the Judaites, that he's attacking the Philistines' enemies, which is the Israelis. And he stays in that scenario for about a year and a half. And that's where our story ends, and we'll pick up next week. Some great stuff in here, right? Now, here's the dilemma that David faced. Not once, but twice. And you could really include a third time when you think about the situation with Nabal. Here's David, and he's standing. Saul comes into the cave, right? And, and look, look at chapter 24 with me. Let's pick up with verse 3. Chapter 24. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were staying in the back of the cave. So they said to him, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. So here are David's men standing behind him and said, Hey, remember what God said to you in the past? That he's going to deliver your enemies? your enemy into your hand, this is it. This is what God wants. This is God's will. This is what you should do. Go up there, take his life. He'll never see what's coming, you know, kind of thing, and, and you'll be the king. This, this is what God promised to you. But there's a question to be answered here. Is this the enemy that God was talking about? And David's in a dilemma of trying to figure out God's will. Same thing happens when he's, in the, when he's in the center of the camp. And maybe the first time, you know, kind of was just an accident or whatever, but now God has actually allowed us to tiptoe our way through 3,000 men and the most alert military people in the nation so that we can stand over the king. Certainly God has brought him into your hand. This is the time to put all your problems behind you, have victory over your problems and to be able to celebrate and move forward in joy. That's, that's the question. In neither case does David take action on that. Even though there's this uncertainty about what is the will of God, some of it even based on what God has said kind of thing, 
he doesn't step forward. I think in many ways, when in the same scenario is with Nabal, I mean, in those customs, in those days, David would have been fully justified for taking out his, his anger, his vengeance, if you will, because of the disrespect and the dishonor that had been showed to him by, by Nabal. Would it, would it his, in his mind, been justified? This is what you've got to do because this is just the way the world works today. But in each of these cases, David sees the truth just a little different. And I think in, in his journey, we can learn some lessons for ourselves when we're in those moments where we're not really sure about whether we should go right or left. Is God in this or is God in that? And we're struggling with those moments, whether it be somebody we should date, somebody we should marry, what what uh, degree we should get, what job should we take. You know, just, uh, there's all kinds of issues. What, what's right in the eyes of God? And how do you get to that place? Let me just show you several things that were really instrumental in David's journey. And I think if we'll let them be instrumental in our journey, you and I will also be able to get into a place where we, we more fully and more accurately understand the will of God for us. Here's, here's the truth that I want you to, to see, the first one. When you're in one of those moments and you're not sure whether God wants you to go right or God wants you to go left, whether God's saying yes or God's saying no, the thing to do is to make sure that you get back to that place that you never violate. You're not violating what is always, let me say the word always, right in the eyes of God. Get back to that stuff. Get back to that foundation where there's no doubt about what's right or what's wrong in the eyes of God. Go back to chapter 24 with me. His men are saying, see, 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 this is what God told us about. See, this is your enemy. God. So David sneaks up, but look at verse 5. Afterwards, Dave's con- David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe, Saul's robe. He said to his men, I swear before the Lord, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. What David knew, what was always right in the eyes of God, was you're not supposed to lift your hand against God's anointed. He knew that to be right. So here he's in this moment, and you can say, well, is this the enemy that God's talking about? And he says, you know what, I'm not so sure about this, but this I know. That God has told me I'm supposed to never touch the Lord's anointed. He got back to that place where he understood that this is what's always right in the eyes of God. And because of that, it told him what was right in the moment. Whether it was Saul coming to him in the cave, or it was rather him sneaking into the center of the camp. i got to tell you, I think you and I would, would, would solve a lot of our spiritual dilemmas in this area if we would just boil back to the place where we say, oh, you know what, I don't know about all this other stuff, but I know that this is always right in the eyes of God. Now, what, 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 where do you get that stuff? Well, let me give you a couple suggestions, and then I'll just read a few other verses going. If, if, you're, if you're wondering what is always right in the eyes of God, you don't know where to start, a couple places. Go back to the Ten Commandments. Go back to Exodus 20. You know, about, you know, not, you know, honoring the Sabbath and not taking the Lord's name in vain and not having any other idols before God and, you know, honoring your father and mother and not lying. Go back to that place. Then add on to that Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. You get back to the Sermon on the Mount and say, okay, is the, what I'm about ready to do going to violate anything that Jesus has taught me 
in, the five, in these three chapters in the book of Matthew. It's a great place to start. But I've got to tell you, there's, there's, there's a lot of other places that you could go that would help you solve so many issues in our lives. You know, that, that because you know what? This, I know that this is always right in the eyes of God. For example, let me just give you an example. Got to get there first. Um, I would guarantee, I, my suggestion or my suspicion would be, okay, that one of the greatest challenges that we have in knowing what exactly it is that God wants us to do is in the area of relationships. Should I do this or shouldn't I do that? That's with a spouse, that's with a child, that's with a parent, colleague, you know, classmate, whoever it is. Great passage of Scripture. This is always right in the eyes of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Never in a situation are you in a place where you know it's God's will, where it's good for you, but it's not good for somebody else. Do you, you know what I mean? It says, pursue what is good for one another and for all. If you get to a, back to a place where you're not violating that, then a lot of the choices just disappear from things. You get back to what you know is always right in the eyes of God. You, you get the idea? It, I, to me, that is powerfully helpful. We have lots of questions in our culture today about what's right and wrong, etc. Just get back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're in this book anyways. Let me just read these verses. For this is God's will, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality so that each of you knows how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who don't know God. Is in the way that you're living your life, the things that you're doing with your body, the way you're dressing your body, all those kinds, is it a part of you actually honoring and holding that gift of your physical body in a way that honors God and is, a sanctific- and is actually a part of your sanctification process? Because that's always right in God's eye. You know, and so I think if we get to a place like David, David's standing here, you know what? If he could just kill Saul, he's going to be the king right away, right? Jonathan's already said, I'm going to serve you. He's going to be the king right away. All the pursuit's going to go away. Think about how great it would be for his family. His father and mother aren't going to have to live in Moab anymore. His wife's not going to be living in a cave with him. His, you know, the men and, and, and their families aren't going to be on the run all the time. All these problems are going to be saved. Man, I ought to just... Never touch the Lord's anointed. And he knows what's always right in the eyes of God, and he makes a choice that fits with that. We need to get back to that place. Here's the second truth I want you to see. This is the second major one. The last one, I'll let just be a, 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 just a brief point at the end. This whole experience with Abigail is just absolutely incredible. And Here's David. David, you know, his blood's boiling. Even as he's coming down the mountain, the scripture is telling us, and I wish I had time to read the whole chapter. You know, he's saying, this guy, is good. I should have never, you know, he is just smoking. I mean, it's just coming out of his ears, you know. He's just angry. And then, out of nowhere, this woman steps in front of him. And she gets off of her donkey. She bows down before him. She pays homage to him, etc., and she starts speaking into his life. 
says, listen, you know, you're going to be the king. You don't want to have a night where you're, where you're rolling around in your bed thinking about, you know, I should have never slaughtered those, those guys. I let my temper get the worst of me, that kind of stuff. And I vile guess I should have just let God fight my battles. You don't want to get to that place. And he, here, here's the point I learned from that. So when you and I are in those moments, we're not really sure kind of what to do. Be very careful who you're listening to. Be very careful who you're listening to. Make sure you maintain people in your life who are going to speak into your life in a way that's right in the eyes of God. You may not always like what you're going to hear from them, but keep those people in your life. Here's David. He didn't know this woman from Adam. I mean, he knew by looking at her, she, she's gorgeous. The Scripture tells us that. She's gorgeous. He, he, he could have rejected but he listened to her because she had credibility. He said, you know what? You're blessed because you not only have saved your family and, and et cetera, but you, you have stopped me from doing something that I would regret. Be very careful who you listen to in your life. Keep people in your life that you can really trust who are going to give you sound, spiritual counsel and wisdom in the moment. You know, I, I realize that can be very difficult. You know, um, you know, sometimes we wonder, well, well, who's really right? You know, some people believe this, and some people believe that. and some other, uh, Who's really right? Who can I trust anymore? You know, I had this experience, actually, when I, was, when I was doing denominational work. I went up to a church in New Hampshire, and I was training their search committee. They, they needed a new pastor. Their pastor had resigned and gone to another ministry. And I was training their committee, you know, the processes to go through, the things that would aid them in their discernment, and et cetera, where they could find people who would be interested in serving there and be able to work through all these kind of stuff is an elaborate process. We had an old notebook and that kind of stuff. And, and when I got done, it, we went through all that. And the guy said to me, said, can, can you help us with something? So we're kind of confused. You know, the last pastor we had taught us that when the New Testament was finished being written, the gift of tongues and all that other kind of stuff just went by the wayside. God didn't give that gift anymore. And just taught it to us as though it was smack dab straight out of the Word of God. And there's no reason why anybody should doubt that. The guy before that, who also loved the Lord, loved the Word, was a great teacher, etc. He said, you know what? You know, it, even though you might have some issues with how it's used and that kind of stuff, there's nothing in the Scriptures that says that these gifts aren't given anymore. And they asked the question, well, who should we believe? Who should we believe? I mean, and that somewhat is symptomatic of the dilemma that we have, right? We have, we have all those kinds of issues, you know, about women in ministry. You get to, you get people all over the place, right? Who do you trust anymore? You know, who can you believe? Well, certainly there's a place where you need to get educated yourself enough yourself to be able to make some of those decisions and have your own input. But here's a I want to give you a couple of handles. These are very general, uh, and if they're not helpful, I apologize, but to me they're extremely helpful. When, when you're thinking about people speaking into your life in moments where you're really at a crossroads, and it matters whether you go left or right or straight ahead. When you're at one of those moments, the kind of people that you want speaking into your life are people who have a firm grip on grace and have a firm grip on truth. Now, I think there are way too many scenarios today, for my liking, where people have either have such a firm grip on grace that they've loosened their grip on truth, or they have such a firm grip on truth that they don't really have much grace left in their lives. You know, I'll give you a couple of examples, and I'm not trying to get us off into political hotspots or whatever, but, you know, there, there is a segment of the church, it's in the paper regularly, that, believe, that, you know, that, that in their effort to be gracious, to be compassionate, to 
be inclusive, to accept all, has gotten to a place where they, because of the strong grip they have on grace, that they are basically have released their grip on truth where things that God says are not right in his eyes, they're willing to say now that they are right in his eyes. You know, and, and we could talk about same-sex marriage and all the legality issues for our state and that kind of stuff. You know what? I'll let the world deal with that. But when you get to a place where you have such a firm grip on grace about loving people and being compassionate, whatever, but you release the fact that God has said, this, just, this isn't something I can bless, that you want to take that which God calls sin and now call it not sin, I think you're in a tough place. But I can tell you, you can get on the other side. You can get guys who have such a firm grip on grues, grit, truth that, that it just literally turns into a fist. You know, they just pound you with it. You know, they're self-righteous, they're arrogant, and etc. and there's no confidence. You don't want either one of those. You want somebody who's willing to stand in the middle, who's got a firm grip on grace and a firm grip on the truth. And sometimes that's a really hard place to stand. It's been a difficult place for me at times to stand as a pastor, having a both grip on both of those. But those, in my mind, are the kinds of people that you want to speak it into your life. The ones who are, have a firm grip on grace, but they also have a firm grip on the truth. And where it gets grayish and difficult in the middle, they're willing to stand there. Here's the other characteristic that I want to give you. You want, you want to have people speak into your life who are truly humble, but they're also very strong. Can I show you something in 1 Samuel? Just, just real quick, just as kind of an illustration. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 25 with me. 1 Samuel chapter 25. I want you to count how many verses are allotted to the death of Samuel. Starting with verse 1. Samuel died, and all Israel assembled to mourn for him, and they buried him by his home in Ramah. David then went down to the wilderness of Paran, and then they went on from there. How many verses? One, right? One verse. I mean, we've got, what, the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, you know, the Jefferson. We've we, we got all these kinds of pieces, right? Here's Samuel. He's the last judge. He's a spiritual and political leader of the nation as a kid. Anoints the first two kings of Israel and the book of 1 Samuel gives his death a verse. One verse. You know, I think humility and strength flows out of recognizing that the story is always about God. It's not about us. The reason we don't have lots of pages on Samuel and all the mighty things he did and the way he spoke and all that kind of stuff is because the story's not about Samuel. It's about what God is doing in the life of, the, of his people. The story's about God. It's not about Samuel. And you want people speaking to your life who are humble but strong because they know they have a place in the story of God, but they always recognize that it is the story of God and not their story. Those are the people you want speaking into your life. So be, influ- be careful who you let influence you. One, one more truth. Real quick. Last, you just have to trust in God. It seems to me often that the will of God is the path that is the most difficult to follow. And you just have to trust God. Would have been a lot easier for David to just, Saul's gone, problem solved, life moves on, good thing. The more difficult road was to let Saul live, 
know that Saul was going to change his heart afterwards, still going to chase you, going to chase you like you're, you're a flea that needs to be swatted, and be forced, as in chapter 27, to go live among your enemies where you're always at risk. Sometimes, knowing the will of God in moments where you don't know whether to go right, left, or straight ahead is simply making sure that you're in a position where you're really ready and open to trusting God. What was that verse that Jesus, that Christina um, presented to us just a moment ago? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Sometimes you just have to trust. Trust him to be your savior and trust him to be your Lord. Trust that he knows what he's doing even if you don't. It takes trust. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for the reminder today that even the spiritual giants, the ones who are the shaper of the faith, even that they had moments where they're not exactly sure what you're doing or what does it mean to follow you. So God, thank you like them. You're ready, willing, and eager and have given us all the resources we need to, need to do what's right in your eyes. So God, show us what's always true in your life, in, in your eyes. Show us what's always true in your eyes. Father, put people into our lives. Let us welcome people into our lives who are going to speak truth, even if it's the truth we don't always want to hear. People who are going to treat us with grace. And God, give us the hearts to trust in you, no matter how steep or windy the journey might be. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to invite our worship team to come. We're going to have our concluding song. And just a moment as we begin to sing, our ushers will hop up and grab the offering plates and begin to place those. Let me encourage you to go ahead and place your connection cards in there with any offering you might like to make this morning. But use these as a moment to really commit yourself to walking with God. Let's stand and sing together.